Amen. Hey, if you're joining us online, welcome. I know that there might be a few people who are extra uh, joining us online because it's kind of a little bit treacherous with, with rain and snow and freezing. It's what happens when it gets above zero and then all of a sudden goes to like minus 25 below zero. That's uh, just kind of the way it is. And so um, God bless you. We're glad that you're here. How y'all doing? All right, good. The year was 1985. Oh, Pastor Mike, you are going back. Yes, 1985, I believe it was my second year in Bible college. I wasn't married yet, but I was madly in love with a girl that I would later marry. And, and it, was, it was such that in Peterborough, from Peterborough, from where I went to Bible college to Niagara area, it was like a three-hour drive. And, and so every Friday, I was in my car and I was driving that three-hour drive. Actually, I made it in two hours and 45 minutes, even though I had to drive through rush hour traffic in Toronto to get there. And um, oh, it was a wonderful time. But this particular weekend, I couldn't go home. I had to stay for, for the weekend uh, in Bible college. What was happening was the thing which is called days of prayer. And so what happens is there's like three days which are set apart by the college in the first semester, I believe, and the second semester, where... There are no classes, but what there are is there's a time where you can focus on prayer. They, they many times have a special speaker come in and address the congregation. I think the, the Bible college at that time had about 400 to 500 Bible college students. And I remember one particular night, one of the last nights that took place, there was something that took place that I had never, ever experienced. I'd just been a Christian for a little period of time. There's something that happened in the service which was so awesome and so incredible that I still remember it to this day. I don't remember the sermon. I don't remember the worship songs. All I remember was that there was a point where God took over. And I remember at 3 o'clock in the morning sitting in the auditorium. 3 o'clock in the morning. The service started at 7 p.m. And it was like I was only there for an hour. And on top of that, I would say about 90% of the students were still in that building. And there were some incredible things that had taken place. And it was so authentic. And it was so orderly. And it was so cleansing. And I still remember to this day some of the wonderful things that had happened. I remember actually at one point there was a guy, someone who delivered a pizza, and, and so this pizza delivery guy comes, and, and uh, the auditorium is right near the front entrance, and the guy took the pizza and says, hey, do you want to see God? <laughs> and so he says, yeah, I guess so. He opens up the auditorium and sees what's going on, and he takes off. I don't know if he ever delivered pizzas again. I'm not sure. But it was an incredible experience, one that even to this day, and perhaps it was the very first just visitation might be the best way to put it. And perhaps you have had a similar experience. After all, I am in a Pentecostal church with Pentecostal people. And perhaps that brings to memory something that you have gone through. And I'm hungry to see that experience again. I'm sure that we all are. Or perhaps you are here and you have been part of experiences that were entirely emotional or manipulated or attention-seeking, and it has turned you off. And whether you are in the first group or whether you are in the second group, I believe that um, God has something to say for us today. 
Now, let me just tell you right off that what I'm about to speak on will not be exhaustive. I'm just going to be tapping the surface. And so this might be one of those times where if you don't normally take notes, this might be a time to take notes so that you can actually go and, and study yourself some of the things that I'm, I'm going to be talking about. Like, we're continuing a study on the life of Jacob. And Jacob, for those who are just kind of joining us, maybe you're just joining us to, uh, online uh, for the first time, we're going through a series which is called Lessons from a Guy Named Jacob. And Jacob, which means deceiver or grabber, is his story from going from deceiver to Israel, who was the one who strives with God. And it's the process of God moving and changing an individual. And the wonderful thing about Jacob is because Jacob is kind of us, right? And we talk about Esau, the one who, who sold the birthright. And we talked about the whole family who manhandled the blessing last week. And um, it may interest you that Jacob was actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about um, the chapter of faith. It's called like the hall of faith um, chapter. And he's mentioned in it. And up to this point, you're thinking, how could that possibly be uh, when we consider the individual who he was? Um, but something happens. There's a change which takes place in Genesis chapter 28. And if you have your Bibles or if you're, if you're going to hop on the, your app at this time, this is the time to do it. I'll be reading from the New International Version. And again, it's, it's a long passage of Scripture, so I can't put it on the, the teaching screen. So, so follow along with me. For those of you who have kind of been part of the faith journey, have been in church life for any length of time, this is not an unfamiliar passage of Scripture. And I'm going to start at verse 10. It says this, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. For those who are just kind of joining on, there's a huge squabble which took place where, where Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. And Esau is going to kill him. And a whole big kerfuffle goes on to the point where Jacob all of a sudden has to leave. He has to get out. And so what happens is he went from Beersheba to Haran. So he went to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he had took one of the stones of that place and put it as his head. And he laid down and sleep in that place to sleep. When he had dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on earth and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad and to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house. There is, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put on his head and set up a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, I am going to, uh, that I am going and give me uh, bread to eat and clothing to put on 
so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will certainly give a tenth to you. We'll stop there. Bethel. He calls the place Bethel. The Bethel experience. Bethel, for those of you who don't know, means the house of God. I wonder what happened. And, and I tried to take a look at perhaps some of the, the recent history of the church and tried to figure out why. What was it that, that caused the, the original fathers to call this place Bethel? There isn't really anything that is mentioned, but, you know, the fact that the place means, hey, God lives here, is a great reason to call the church Bethel, isn't it? Like the altar is a place where heaven's doors open. Could you imagine that? This is where the gateway to heaven is. What a wonderful thought that that would take place. But it's the context of the use of the term Bethel, which I think is important. Because Bethel, it seems to me, as I have kind of been in this kind of Pentecostal family for you know, over three decades, that when you mention that word Bethel, it kind of seems to mean a little bit more because the context in which it was expressed is in a dream of God, of the presence of God. And for many of the people of God, it just doesn't mean the house of God. It refers to a visitation of the Holy Spirit. When someone tells you they have a Bethel experience, it was a life-changing moment from the Holy Spirit that you do not forget. That's kind of what it talks about. And as people who are part of a Pentecostal heritage, this is important to us. But I've come to realize that it is also a bone of contention. That there are a lot of arguments, there are a lot of disagreements as to how this is exhibited, as to how this is expressed. I know some people kind of say, well, listen... You know, I don't know, I, 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 I don't know if I feel the Spirit of God here. I don't know if this, and, and, and you know, sometimes those become like fighting words. What do you mean I don't know what the presence of God is? What do you mean I don't know? We, and it is just this big tension sometimes that's caused over this very thing. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to remain as scripturally sound as I possibly can. I want to be biblical. And... If your definition of biblical is to form an opinion and topple a couple of scriptures on it to prove your point, that's not being biblical. What we need to do is we need to take a look at what the Word of God says and let it stand for itself and compare it to other instances which are kind of the same so that we see something that comes out. And when we take a look at the life of Jacob, he changed. But he changed because of two distinct experiences that he had with God. One left an indelible imprint on his soul. The second one, which was decades afterwards, led, left an indelible imprint upon his soul and upon his body. And so, it's primarily important for us to see the church. Bethel. And I wanted to talk about what are the ingredients to a Bethel experience? What are some of the common things that we see that we can apply today to our lives? Let me just say, again, I guess I probably could have done this in two different services, but for some reason as I prayed this through, I think that I needed to kind of give you everything. I'd rather give you everything and say, listen, go and study it more. 
than to give you four one week and three another week and say, okay, you know, it's discombobulated because I kind of forgot the last four from last week. I would rather speak on all seven, maybe two weeks in a row. Um, but that's not what I did. And let me also tell you this, that when you take a look at the, the Bethel experience, it is, mirrors what took place in the Moses experience when God went with Moses. And there are also familiarities in the Isaiah experience in Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. You know that passage of scripture. And there are similarities as well in Acts chapter 2 when the Pentecostal experience happens. And so you see a pattern. So if you could give me a few minutes to dive in this in a shallow way to perhaps whet your appetite to go and study this a little bit deeper. If you are really, really interested in the presence of God and experiencing the presence of God. And it is my strong belief that we all do. We all desire this. What are the ingredients to uh, a Bethel experience? The first thing uh, is this. That God uses a Bethel experience to, first of all, care for us. It's a nice thing to know, isn't it? If you take a look at the story, right at the beginning, the first few verses that I read. He had to go to Padam Aram to a place called Beersheba, which was 500 miles. Now, if you have like a... A trailblazer, that's nothing. But if you have to walk it out, that's a long distance. And so he goes this 500-mile uh, journey. His dad was still seething over the fact that he had been hoodwinked. That's another great word, eh? Hoodwink. Who made that word up? What was it last week? Cockamamie. What a great word that is. No, this week it's hoodwinked. I don't even know how it started. I could give you an explanation, but you wouldn't believe me anyways. He'd been hoodwinked. And not only that, his mother he would never, ever see again. Bye, Mom. Have a great life. And the Bible says that he was kind of the guy who kind of, his brother was kind of the guy who went out hunting. It says he liked to stay around the tents. And so here's a guy who was a homebody who was forced to leave. His first day, he travels 50 miles. And he ends up in a community which is called Luz. It's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And he's at a point where he goes to sleep and things are so bad that he has to use a rock for a pillow. How comfortable is that? You know? So here's a guy who is in turmoil in his life. His family is a mess. He's traveled a long distance and he uses his head, he uses his rock, a rock for his, a pillow. Hey, folks, it is the thing that dreams are made of. Is it not? Probably, probably not. But here's the thing. When you take a look at him at this point, there's absolutely nothing that says in scriptures that he has redeemed himself in any way, that he did not help himself, that he deserved any kind of preferential treatment. So the scene was totally, what we see and what we read about the scene was totally instigated by God to someone who did not have it all together. It was an act of grace initiated by God. It was unearned act of kindness. And you know what? That's great news for you and me. Because you might be sitting here and saying, you know what? My life is not together. I have a whole bunch of pieces and I don't even know how to begin to put them together. 
And if that's you, isn't it glad, isn't it a good thing that you still qualify? That God's, this is perhaps the most important thing for you to take home. That despite the fact that you might not be serving Jesus, despite the fact that you may not have, he's still pursuing you. He still wants to meet with you. He still desires to personally be involved in your life. God uses the Bethel experience to care for us. If you go on in verse 11, I think to 13, it says God uses a Bethel experience to confirm us. That's something that he, he did. He, he, this was an important thing because it confirms God's hand in his life. And if you read, read some of the things that, that God was saying to Jacob, you will look at him and say, did I not read that somewhere? I kind of heard this before. Did I not? Yes, it is true. You did hear that before because he said the exact same thing to Abraham. He says the exact same thing to Isaac. And now he's saying something to the third generation. He's going to that point where he had to go not from his grandfather's religion or his father's religion. It had to be a point where he made it his own. And that's an important thing about faith. My children cannot live off my experience. If you're here and you're a young person sitting with your mom and your dad, you can't live off your mom and dad's experience. You've got to experience Jesus for yourself. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And so Abraham had one son. Isaac had two sons. So by the time it gets to Jacob, it had not increased a whole lot, had it? And God says, you guys are going to be as plenteous as the, as the grains of sand. And what God does is he establishes the fact that I am still going to do what I said, what I'm going to do with your grandfather and with your father. And there was something about the confirmation that God was going to continue to do it. And this is an important thing because sometimes the most important thing that a, a Bethel experience does is it brings you back to the vision that God has for you. To realize that you're not made to sit in a pew. You're made to do something more. Sometimes we sit and we ask, what have happened memory? Is God calling you back to what he called you a number of years ago to do? I think Paul does the same thing when he's talking to Timothy. I like the way he articulates it to Timothy when he's talking about the fact that God's called you to something to confirm the ministry in him, he says this. He says, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God, which is given to you through a prophetic word. In other words, it can go out. You need to continually hone and work on this to keep the lights bright, that, that there's kind of a use it or lose it aspect to it. And sometimes God has to revisit us to bring us back to the fact that he has a job for us to do. And the Bethel experience will serve to confirm or reaffirm not what your will is, but what God's will is. What God will not do, would not do for him, but what God does through him. And in that whole process, he says, you know what? I'm going to be with you. A God uses a Bethel experience to confirm us. God will also use a Bethel experience um, uh, to convince us, I believe. Um, yes, to convince us. One of the main parts of this, of this um, story was the fact that 
God had to convince Jacob that he was real. And one thing that a Bethel experience does, a visitation of God does, is takes us from a point of doubt to a point of being convinced that the God that we serve is actually real. And he had to show that to Jacob. He had to show who he was. And you know, the difference between the life of Jacob before this event and the event after was a huge change. Was he perfect? No. He was far from perfect. But at the very least, he was convinced of the fact that there was a God in heaven that desired to direct his life. That he wasn't born for nothing. That there was a purpose. And once you become convinced that the God that you serve is real, like I'm talking about really convinced, I think that there are three things that happen. When you realize that God is real, you are never alone. You are always accountable. And that it all of a sudden no longer becomes about you. God uses the Bethel experience to convince us. He also uses the Bethel experience to convict us. Do you read what happens in verse 16 when he gets up and the things that he says? Basically, when Jacob wakes up, it says that he was terrified, not exhilarated. He didn't wake up and say, oh, wow, this is wonderful. He was scared to death. It says the words when I was talking about how he felt, the Greek word which uses the same thing that we use for phobia, he was scared. The Latin term was the same that we use for terrible. The interesting thing about this passage is when they begin to talk about how Jacob felt, the NIV said, how awesome is this? The King James Version says, how dreadful is this? It almost seems like they're two different words. We've kind of misconstrued that word awesome, haven't we? What he was basically saying is, I'm terrified to be considered the fact that God is here uh, to, to work in such a, a way. And, and, and mark my words, in every single instance where we see God move in someone's life, in Moses, in Isaiah, in the, in the, uh, in the day of Pentecost, all of them had this part of it to us. The people were scared when they saw God. The day of Pentecost, it says they were cut to the heart. And if the, if the, the Spirit of God does anything when it visits us, it causes us to realize that there are things in our lives that perhaps shouldn't be there and that we need to change. And, and these are important things to understand. And verse 16 says it this way. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Isn't that an interesting passage of Scripture? If you study this passage of Scripture, there are two, two frames of thought from people who have spent their life studying the Scriptures. The first group of people think this. That Jacob was convinced that he had desecrated the place where he was lying. Here I am lying on God's doorstep. And here I am sleeping on it. All of a sudden he realized that he somehow or thought that he somehow offended God by being so casual in a place which was so special. That's why he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. In that particular time, the location of God, a location of a place was extremely important. And if you look at the scriptures, the only place that is mentioned more than Bethel in the Old Testament is Jerusalem. So there's something there. The other side thinks this, that when he said the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it was the fact that he was oblivious to the fact that God was trying to speak to him when he had his own agenda. And I think to myself, how terrible is that? I would never ever want 
to have the Spirit of God present and then not even recognize it. How often, perhaps, has that happened? That I've had an agenda, I've had an idea, and when it hasn't happened according to my idea, I just missed out on the whole experience altogether. And if we have a Bethel experience, if we have a time where God moves, when God does something absolutely special, it sobers us. Because Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A Bethel, God uses the Bethel experience to convict us. But he will also use a Bethel experience to commit us. It's interesting to see what happens in verse 18 to 22. What he does when he realizes what takes place, he takes the rock with which he had slept. He sets it up as an altar, as a monument, and he anoints it with oil. Well, why is this so so special? Well, the reason this is so special is because oftentimes what would happen is people would create an idol at that particular time, and they would worship the idol. And that's not what Jacob does. He didn't want to worship the moment, but he wanted to worship the God who brought the moment around. And sometimes we can be guilty of making idols of next, where is the next room? can go where I can experience the power of God? Where is, the next, where is the next rain cloud that I can go to where somehow I can sense the feelings that I felt the experience for? And sometimes we can make idols of the experience. And what happens is the experience becomes the idol. But what Jacob does and what God desires for us to do is to make monuments of them, to, to remember This is what he did. He said, I'm going to make a monument, and I'm going to promise to you on this monument, God, I'm going to promise to you that I'm going to serve you with all of my life. I'm going to give you absolutely everything. And it became an indelible imprint on his life. And if you read a couple chapters, again, in in Genesis chapter 31, God says this. He says, I want you to know that you need to go else because, you know what, I am the God of Bethel. That's what he says. Now, what happens is, verse 28 And verse 31 is only a couple minutes of reading. But in those three chapters, over 20 years passes. And so when God says to Jacob, I'm the God of Bethel, Jacob knew exactly what he was talking about. He remembered an experience where God showed up and it changed him. And it was a time where he went back to those times all the time. There are faith hangers that take place. Times that we go back to when God has specifically moved in our lives. I can't help but think that the disciples had faith hangers. Times where they remembered Jesus did something. Times when he said something. Times when a miracle took place. That they went back to when things were difficult. It's like sitting in a a Bible college auditorium at 3 o'clock in the morning. And saying, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you everything. You have every part of my life. And because God works so deep in my life, there are times when I just go back to that. And I would imagine there are times when you go back to those times to commit us. God also uses a Bethel experience. And I'm just going to kind of combine these together. Not that they're not less important, but I didn't want to spend too long. He'll use it to call us. And he will use it to change us. I'll just quickly say this. Every time in Scripture a divine visitation came, it came with a task 
or the awareness of a task. Okay, so what do I do now? And the awesome thing is that God will include us in the plan. And it is the same and it is different. It is the same because it is, is based on the fact of the great commandment to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and the great commission which says that we need to go out and tell people about Jesus. But how, it's, how the passion is displayed is different in all of us according to the gift, according to the passion. And, and for some of us, it will deal with the business world. I grew up in the business world, and there's a lot of my friends in the business world that don't need Jesus, or maybe it's human trafficking, or maybe it's children's ministry, or maybe it's youth, or maybe it's the missions field, or maybe it's prison ministry. Whatever God has put in your heart to say, okay, God, here I am. Use me in this particular area. God will always move you or lead you or lead you back to something, which ultimately will change you. And there's a reason why. You can't tell a revival until the revival has been done for six months. You say, wow, what a wonderful revival. I'll say this. We'll see. Let's wait six months. Because if God visits you, it results in change. Amen? That's pretty quick. Sorry I went so fast with all these things. But these are all important things when we're talking about God visiting us. And you know what? I want to see God visit us. There isn't, folks, there is not a whole lot of difference between Jacob and his brother Esau. Esau was absolutely godless, and Jacob had a little bit of faith, a mustard seed of faith. And God uses him, and if God uses him and pursues him, he will use us. He will pursue us. The first time we even hear Jacob pray is in this passage of Scripture. Wow. Are you hungry for a move of God? I was, I was asking myself, with all that's happening in, in, in Ottawa and that, should I not be speaking on something else? And then I began to think, folks, what we need is a visitation of the Holy Spirit. We need to see God move. Amen? Ever tell you about Roy? Oh, I throw in so many stories when I'm speaking. Sometimes I forget whether I've mentioned his name. My first, second year of ministry, um, I was in a place called Coburg, Ontario, in, in eastern Ontario district of the PAOC. It's actually where their camp is. And, um, and so here I am. I think it was my second second year of ministry and Pastor McCallum, who was my first pastor, uh, I was pastoring under. I don't know whether he went on holidays, but he just gave me a, gave me a thought. Oh, why don't you speak on a Sunday morning? Well, here I am. You know, I'm going to get this. I studied. I made sure there I was going to be you know, hellfire and brimstone and telling people everything that I had ever known, learned from the Bible in one sermon. And so here I am talking. I'm right at the end of the sermon. And I said this, if you don't know Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to come up and meet me at the altar. And I wasn't finished my sermon yet, but I said that. And I go on and I talk about the love of God and how he was there and that he cares for us. And I turn back and I bump into Roy. Smacked right into him. 
He had gone not only to the front, he went up on the top of the stage. He was standing at the pulpit, and while I was here, I was turning, and I bump into him. Isn't that crazy? Crying out, crying out loud, Roy, don't you know the rules? That's not the rule, is it? You're supposed to just come up to the front, bow down. That's the way it's done. He didn't know the rules. I've been coming to youth for a few weeks. He wanted to date a girl who said, I'm not dating you unless you know Jesus. <laughs> and, and God got a hold of him in that service to the point where he didn't even give a care. He didn't care what anyone thought. He walked to an altar, up the altar, with a couple hundred people watching, and slams into me. Well, I slammed into him. And uh, yeah, just kind of said, listen, we'll sit down. There'll be someone who will talk to you. And I, I would imagine, I still imagine people thinking, what is that guy doing up there? You know, it's one of those, hey, I remember one time when church, guy went up to the front and the pastor bumped right into him. Um, that was me, in case you heard that story. Um, I'm always amazed, folks, at how people experience isn't it great? Isn't it great how people experience God? And it leads me to ask myself and to ask you, when was the last time you had an experience with God? Or maybe the question is, are you hungry for an experience with God? I believe that we always are, but sometimes we just go to that point where we're just kind of hovering where we're at. And I have found that when I do have an authentic moment with God, it surprises me. That what I expect to happen oftentimes doesn't happen. And I believe that God does that because sometimes we have a tendency to put God in a box because we want it to be predictable and we want it to be controllable. And God will not be predicted and God will not be controlled when he shows up. The one thing I find myself saying is that I wish that I was a little bit more like Roy. I didn't care about it. Did I throw the protocol out? This is what you're supposed to do. Well, no, it's not what you're supposed to do. It's what we have learned to do. And to just simply love God so much, to, to desire God to move so much that I forget the protocol and I just simply love Jesus. And I come to an altar and I said, I don't care what anybody else is doing. I don't care what else is going on. All I want is to know God, is to allow him to change my life in a way that he reaffirms in me the fact that he cares for me and that there's a job for me to do. That God will somehow do something fresh, something real. And that's what he did with Jacob. And that's what he wants to do with us. Sometimes I just feel like I need to park my truck at the altar. And say, God, I'm not leaving until you change me. I'm not leaving until you do something real in my life. Do you have that hunger? Do you remember those times? There's a God who loves us, pursuing us. And I say, God, have your way. So God, I just pray that you will move in a powerful way um, 
this morning. I can't make anything happen. But I do know that there's a God who loves us. There's a God who's pursuing us. And I know, Father, that we are living in times where we need to see the power of God move. I pray for your anointing. I pray for your touch on this time. I ask God that your word will penetrate our heart and that, Lord, the presence of the Holy Spirit will be with us as we close together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's continue the conversation online. Visit us at BethelBrandon.ca or follow us on Facebook.